maybe a couple times a year, and it, it feels like every time I go in there, it's the same half dozen people drinking coffee. It's like, it's like their second home. I feel a little sad for them, actually. Like, maybe they need a box or somewhere to stay in the evenings. But most of the time, when you see people going back to the same spot, the same restaurant, Panera, Starbucks, whatever, you realize that there's something more going on than just that they like the coffee. And then when you realize they're there that frequently and you think about what they're ordering, you, you realize they're, they're running up one heck of a tab, right? I mean, no, no judgment. Just, you know, if you go to Starbucks three times a day, pretty soon it's going to add up. And it, and it makes me think that what they're really paying for isn't coffee. What they're paying for, what they're investing in is, is the people they're with. And, and that's really like everything, man. I mean, you know, all, all, all the stuff that we do. You know, right now it's summertime. You're, you're probably, you know, digging up the backyard, cleaning out the boat, cleaning out the garage. You're, you're investing a lot of time and money, but you're really not investing it in the thing. You're investing it in the, the experience, the relationships, the memories, the way you're being bound together. And that, that reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's a really funny little order, right? Because he starts with treasure. He starts with money, and then he says, your heart follows. And we typically think it's the other way. We think, well, we love something, and so we throw a bunch of money at it. But, but that, I mean, maybe there's a reciprocal relationship. I just think the way Jesus approached the topic was peculiar. Because what he's saying is when you make the investment, it'll pay off. You think about it like your wedding. Weddings are so expensive, right? I mean, man, right now, a Michigan summer wedding, that's like... Two, three, hundred bucks. <laughs> but you're investing all that money first because you know you're investing in your future and it pays off in relationship. When we give to God, man, we're, not, we're, we're, we're putting our treasure where we want our heart to be. My heart is with you. My heart is with God. When I give, I'm giving for the promise of a better future in God's church for God's people and God's glory. Amen? So we're going to give generously and sacrificially. Ushers, you come forward. And let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the privilege of being believers, of knowing and trusting and having had you prove to us again and again and again that what we do matters. It's not in vain, but instead we reap the benefit in our hearts and our communities and our families for you and with you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, I don't know what to tell you about this morning's teaching, except that God gave me this sermon in one fell swoop in its entirety in the single strangest way imaginable. And I'm going to tell you this weird story if you'll just give me a little leeway to indulge the strength of my week. Now, if you've been kicking around West Winds for a while, you know that I like to be prepared like, right now, I know every single sermon that I'm going to preach from Labor Day through to the end of next school year. I mean, I know every single week what's, what I'm talking about. I mean, I know it. I don't, however, know what I'm preaching on next Sunday. 
And it's really scary. I mean, when I started out in ministry, that's how it went. You know, you'd, you'd just pray and pray and pray all week long, absolutely terrified that if you didn't get it right, if you didn't hear a word from the Lord, everybody's going to hell, you know. And by the, by the time you got to Thursday afternoon, the temperature was already so hot. You thought your friends were melting. You're like, sweet Jesus, I need to hear from you. So you're flipping through your Bible looking for a coffee stain, totally anxiety-ridden, and then just barely on Sunday morning, you'd, you'd get up there and, and throw somebody a lifeline. It's really scary. But I thought, just for this summer, I'm going to run the risk of you going to hell every Sunday. I'll just, I'll just do it. We'll just see how it, how it plays out, you know. It's good, good practice for me to stay prayed up and preached up. So, so every, every week, I mean, I mean, already the clock has started ticking for next Sunday where I'm like, all right, Lord, we've we got to come up with something to say. I mean, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with the good book. I could find something. But, you know, we want, we want something special, something for you, because right? you need it. You need it. And some of you, of course, you're here and, man, you're on your last legs. You are busted up, beaten up. You feel like it's time to quit. Man, I see you. We're here for you. Some of you are ready to set the world on fire. I mean, inside your spirit, you look like Simone on caffeine. <laughs> you feel like you're Kevin's guitar strings. You're just going to burst into flames, you know, and and when we see you, we're here for you too. Some of you need strength because you're shouldering a lot. And we want to give you some of ours, some strength that you hold on. Some of you need assurance, assurance that you're doing it right, assurance that you're not crazy, assurance that you're okay, that God's not mad at you. We got you, Pam. Some of you, when you want to go to the next stage, of your faith and your development. You want to level up. You want to get bigger in your spirit. Be of more value, of more use. Man, we're, we're all here together. We're all ready to hear from God. And so when I'm praying, man, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the Lord would speak to me so I can speak to you. And this week, wow, he befuddled me. <laughs> so as of Thursday afternoon, I got nothing. I got nothing. I mean, I could lucky dip, you know, but I'm always afraid it's going to be the Song of Solomon, you know, so I'm... Um, <laughs> praying and praying and praying, and Thursday night I got nothing, and then I fall asleep, and I kid you not, I have this dream. <laughs> I've never had a dream like this before. I hope to God I never have one like this again. In my dream, I'm 17 years old. I have black hair. I have on my band uniform from high school. Black slacks, tuxedo shirt, blue cummerbund, and I look down, and there's a piece of paper in my hands. And I look up, and it's the evening of the band concert, and we're in front of an amphitheater, and I got to go into the amphitheater, and I see five hoodlums waiting, and they're going to beat me up. They want my piece of paper. And I think, over my dead body, like, that's just not going to happen. But five on one is terrible odds. And so I see them, you know, they perk up, and they're running towards the doors, and they're going to get me, and I decide in that moment, I'm going down fighting. My only chance is to strike first, and I do, by the glory of God. I mean, I spear the first dude, Holy Ghost elbow to the second guy, break the third guy's arm, and then the police show up, the band concert police, <laughs> and they take me into the interrogation room at the amphitheater, and they say, you know what? You're old enough. You're going to be tried as an adult. You're going to jail. I, said, I can't go to jail. It's five on one. It was self-defense. They're like, no, we saw you, bro. You went crazy. But you don't understand, I said. And I held up my piece of paper. I have to give my sermon at the band concert. 
And so they let me preach at the band concert, and then I went to jail. And I woke up, <laughs> and I wrote down this, <laughs> which is what we're talking about this morning. And I don't know what to tell you other than that's true, and that's strange, and you should never have an experience like that <laughs> as long as you live. <laughs> Now, I don't know if this dream is prophetic. I think prof probably not. Maybe it's just leftover seminary notes or something. But, you know, man, it's up to you if you get anything out of it. It's up to you. He who has ears, let him hear. There are five kinds of church in the Bible. I thought we'd walk through them because they each teach us a little bit different aspect of what it means to be part of God's family. Now, here's the thing you've got to know right up front. The thing that almost everybody gets wrong until they grow up or get learned. Church is not a provider of religious goods and services. Church is not a product. It's a people. You are the church. You want to know what kind of church you go to? Look in the mirror. You want to know what your reputation is of your church out there? Check yourself, man. You of the church. We together are the people of God. And by going through these sort of five different aspects of the church to the scripture, I, I think we're going to learn some stuff. So we start with the oldest gathering of God's people in the scripture, the earliest gathering of God's people in the tabernacle. Now, here we are, Exodus chapter 25. God says to his people, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The word there is not dwell. The word there actually in Hebrew is the word tabernacle, that I might tabernacle in their midst. You know what a tabernacle is? It's a big tent. It's a big tent. For God to make his tent in the middle of us means that, that you know, figuratively, if, if God was here, he is, but if he was here visibly, then right down this center aisle, he'd put up this huge campground and he'd just be there in the middle where all of us could get to him where all of us could sit with him, where all of us could hear from him, where all of us could see and experience God in his fullness and in his glory. Now, God tells the people to build him a tabernacle while they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. 40 years of wandering. That's a lot of taking down the tent. That's a lot of putting the tent back up. Now, the thing that stands out to me is if you're going to, change campgrounds every night, and this is a huge tent with multiple areas, special objects in it, little rooms, curtains, decorative items, then you need a lot of help. Everybody had a part to play in the first manifestation of God's church, which begs the question, what's your part? What's your part? I mean, some are musicians. Some work on the tech team. Some are out there cleaning windows. Some are helping with the kids. What, what are you doing? Now, no judgment if you're not doing anything yet. Well, I'm going to make you feel bad. But at some point, you've you got you to gotta find your part and do it. Not because we need the help, but because this is yours. This is your church. It's not something you show up and watch. It's not something you sit around and evaluate. It's you. That's one of the things I love about the table, man. Every Wednesday night we get together and everybody does all the work. That's actually how we decided we were going to start it. We said, if we're going to do something with food, we got to make sure everybody helps. 
Because normally when you add food to church, there's like six little old ladies running around and like 200 fat guys, and they hate each other. It's like the old country buffet went out of business and just came to Westwind, you know? So I said, there is no way that we are doing that. No, man, it, it's everybody, everybody setting up tables, everybody putting on tablecloths, everybody, the whole thing for over 100 people takes less than 10 minutes to set up. And then it takes less than 10 minutes to clean up because everybody has their part. And every now and then we get, you know, one or two people who stand off to the side and demand a chair. And I mean, can I be real with you for just a second? I hate those people. I hate those people, you know. I mean, God will forgive them, you know, and the Lord will forgive me for hating them because I'm just speaking my truth, you know, but what, I hope they slip and fall. <laughs> no, the thing that's so great about the table, the thing that's supposed to be so great about church is not only that we get to be together, but that you got a thing you can do. It's yours. It's your gift. It's your offering. It's your contribution because this isn't about what church you go to. It's about what kind of church you are. So you got to figure out what your part is. And if you don't know, if you can't figure out, man, we'll help you. Come talk to us afterwards. We'll get you connected to the people that know because we want to help you become a passionate contributor to your family. So we start out in the tabernacle. That's the first manifestation of God's church. And it leads us to ask the question, what's your part to play? And then a couple hundred years later, God's people stop wandering. They get rooted in the promised land. They raise up a king. He starts a remarkable dynasty, King David, the paradigmatic leader throughout the scripture, a man after God's own heart. And David says, Lord, I want to build you a temple. David spends years, decades, planning out all the rooms of the temple, the decor of the temple. He's got a vision for it. And at the end of his life, as he gets ready to build it, God says, no, no. David was too in love with war. And God wanted a man of peace to build his house. So the Lord told David, let your son build it. So in 1 Chronicles 28, Scripture says, David gave Solomon the plans for all the temple buildings, the storerooms, all the other rooms, and for the most holy place where sins are forgiven. And Solomon's temple becomes one of the wonders of the ancient world. Like people travel for thousands of miles to see this palace of splendor to the God of the universe. And when they got there, they made sacrifices. And what's so novel about it is that they, they made sacrifices, not, not just Jewish people, but all people. There were ways for the most obscure, paganish people to somehow make supplication to the God of the world. The temple teaches us that worship requires sacrifice. So what are you sacrificing? What sacrifices are you making for God and for your church? Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I want to, I mean, as a pastor, I want to make sure my sacrifices are the most painful, the biggest, the most costly. It's my ambition to make sure I'm sacrificing more than any of you for all of you. It's my real ambition to be able to sacrifice more than all of you combined, but I'm not, I'm not there yet, you know. You guys are remarkable. But I think that's the right spirit, is to be asking all the time, what can I give? How can I serve? What can I do to demonstrate to God and to God's people that I'm all in? And it's amazing because when, the more you read about Solomon's temple, I mean, it, was, it was gorgeous. It's opulent. I mean, just covered in 
jewels and gold and art, and you, and you think, if that's the place where God dwells, shouldn't, shouldn't my sacrifice match God's house? Like, I want to make sure I'm offering the absolute best of who I am, the absolute best of what I have for God. Because how terrible for God to invite me into his presence and me to pull out some half-thought-through, sorry little thing and say, hope you like it. No, God wants more from me because God put more into me and God put more into you. So we start in the scripture and we ask, what's our part in the tabernacle? We move to the temple and we ask, what are you willing to sacrifice? And by the time we get to the pages of the New Testament, worship has taken an even slightly different form. There's a new temple because the old one got blown up by the bad guys. But the new temple is not quite as comfortable. There's some political stink to it. And so God's people start having church in what are called synagogues. Now, synagogues are a little old school, like little meeting halls where all the men sit at the front and argue and all the women sit at the back and gossip about the men. You know, it's totally different from church today. <laughs> but that's what they would do, man. They would read the scripture and then they would debate it. And you've heard the old adage maybe, you know, two rabbis, three opinions. That's a pretty good picture of what was happening in the synagogue. That's why every time Jesus stood up and taught in the synagogue, people were totally polarized. They're mad at him. They're happy about him. They're confused about what he's trying to do, and they're ready to go to fisticuffs over it at a moment's notice. You go to the synagogue, and a hockey game breaks out. I mean, it's a good time. And the synagogue reminds us, man, that the church is a place where our minds are sharpened. So what are you learning at church? What are you learning? I mean, like, for, for my part, I'm trying to do everything I can to resource you, to inspire you, to, to give you rabbit trails to chase down, to, to, to drop clues for how you might deepen your faith, whether those are things we publish on the Internet, whether those are things we publish in books in the bookstore, whether it's references we give in the Scripture. Man, I want you to be totally sold out, bought in. I want you to be passionately pursuing God in every way imaginable. But, man, I can't make you do that. You've got to want to sharpen your mind. You've got to want to educate your intuition. You've got to want to grow your spirit. You've got to want to learn. And that's what a disciple is. Disciple comes from the Greek word methetes. It means learner. You are learning the way of God. Right. So the tabernacle asks us, what's our part? And then next is the temple, we're asking, what are you willing to sacrifice? From the temple, we move into the synagogue, saying, what are you learning? And then, then we come to the fourth kind of church in the Bible. And this is the one that's so heavily romanticized. And this is the one that everybody wants to talk about, sing about, celebrate, glorify, hold up as the ideal. It's the house church. The earliest followers of Jesus start gathering in people's homes, they're eating together, drinking together, sharing songs and stories, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, everyone giving testimony. This is what we're told in Acts chapter 2. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. I mean, it was everybody together doing everything together for one another in God's glory. And it makes you ask, who's in your house? Who's 
in your house. Now, you can't get everybody in your house, clearly. But somebody better be there. And if we use house even figuratively, I mean, you still, you got some, you got some friends. You got a friend group. You got some close friends. You got people you rely on, people you know and love, and people that you're investing in. What are your responsibilities to them? Who are you bringing into your house? And what are you doing with them? Like, I tend to think of my house or really any, any property that's mine as like um, Eden. Not because it's especially beautiful, just because it's mine. You know, you read in the earliest stories of the Bible that when Adam and Eve, you know, showed up, the, the Lord gave them a garden in Eden, and they were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. They were supposed to expand the area of their dominion to grow it. And you know what? When you come to my house, I hope you call first. <laughs> but I hope it, it feels like I'm sharing the good things God has given us with you. Like you experience hope and peace and laughter. I hope you, you experience that sense that like we're, we're together in this. And not just my house. Man, if you come to my office at Westwinds, I hope you feel that way. I hope you get in there and you feel like you're, you're part of my domain. You come to the chapter house and help out, volunteer, whatever, stay there. I want you to feel as though the things God is doing in me, God is now sharing with you. And, and it ought to be like that for us all. So who's in your house? Who's in your life? Who are your people? And what are your responsibilities to them? Because, man, that was the most glamorous season in church history. All right. Let's review. We start out in the tabernacle. Thank you, Rick, Bible college student. Very excited about him. All right. Trying to figure out what our part is. And then we move to the temple, right? Figuring out what we're willing to sacrifice. And then we're off to the synagogue asking ourselves what we're learning before we go to this romantic picture of the house church. Figuring out what our responsibilities are to each other. And then the last one, and this is the one that often gets overlooked because it's church out there. Church beyond the walls. Church busting out all over the world. Because remember, church is not a provider of religious goods and services. Church is not a product. It's a people. It's you. And you are not always going to be here. You better be out there. It's church in the marketplace, we call it. Church beyond the walls. Church beyond the property. Church busting loose and breaking out all over the world. And it's best exemplified by the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes to pick a fight, man. And I don't know how much you know about the Apostle Paul, but he is both an inspiring and comical figure in the New Testament. He's like God's pit bull. And I, I would typically imagine he walks sort of like this, you know, like he's the sheriff showing up at high noon, ready to take on everybody. Our historians tell us that in all likelihood, the Apostle Paul was short, crooked-spined, bald, and had one eyebrow. So he's like God's troll. He's just this ugly little thumb of a man showing up to tick everybody off and break into fights. And so the Apostle Paul goes up onto Mars Hill, this place where, you know, Stoic philosophers and Epicureans would get together and debate. And they got all these statues everywhere of all the different gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon. And then they got one empty pedestal that says, 
to the unknown God. Like they're trying to cover their bases, right? All right, we got the sex God, the war God, we got the money God. Oh, boy, okay, let's put that one over there just in case we're going to get in trouble in some way. We don't know. And the Apostle Paul swaggers up there, you know, all the way up, puts his foot on that little pedestal and says, hey, let me tell you about this God, the God you've been talking about your whole lives and know nothing about, the God you've been writing songs and stories and poems about and of whom you are completely ignorant, this God, creator and sustainer of the world, man, he's after your heart. This God demands your allegiance. See, this last church, the church that you're in now, requires you to be prepared to engage the world, to advocate for the faith, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of God, to remind people who they are and what they're worth and why they're worth it. This last church makes you ask the question, are you prepared? See, because you come every week. And every week we do everything we can to fill you up. But that's not enough. Church isn't a gas station. Church is not a provider of goods and services. Church is a people. You're a people. Maybe you come hurt. Maybe you leave a little bandaged up. Well, good, because now you've got to go out there and be prepared. Maybe you show up, you feel defeated. You get a little shot in the arm, and you feel like maybe you can keep going. Well, good, because you've got to go back out there. You want to know what the next stage in your development is? You better get prepared, because it's going to happen out there. And over and over and over and over again, we have to remind ourselves that this is not something that happens to us. This is something happening in us. And it's incumbent upon us to open our hearts to receive it, to say, yes, God, give it to me. I'm ready. Let's go. To not wait till we're absolutely perfect. To not wait till we're absolutely put together again and unhumpty dumpty before we try and be of use. You're going to have to play hurt your whole life. You'll get hurt. Keep going. You'll be sad. Keep going. God can still use you if you're hurt and you're sad and you're broken and you're confused. And as God uses you, God will heal you. And you go, well, Lord, when am I going to get the thing I need? Lord, when am I going to get the answers I need? When am I going to get all the things I need? As you go. As you go. And you'll go with a rock in your shoe, and you'll go with a bad hip, and you'll go with a limp, and you'll go. And you'll heal the world, and you'll make a difference, because that's who you are as the people of God, as the church of God, on the mission of God. Because church isn't a product. Church is you. And that's the best question of all, man. If you are the church, what kind of church do you want to be? Let's pray. Lord, you're good to us, man. Too good to compare. We would have given up on ourselves a long time ago, and most of us have. But not you. Not you. Like a good father, you're there, picking us up, dusting us off, cheering us on, getting us to go, to go. And so we're after it, Lord, limping, crawling, bouncing, jeering, man, we're on our way. So we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, fill us with your truth, fill us with your power, and receive all that we do as love and honor and fealty.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.